We've had uh, some time to look at a season of hope and do several Christmas messages, Advent messages, but we're going to return to Galatians now, where we left off, and we are looking at a message called Sharing Abraham's Blessing. I'm just going to do four verses together. Once you've uh, kind of settled and located the text, if you're physically able to stand, would you stand to your feet as we share the text together? Galatians 3, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing, Galatians 3, 8, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying... All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for each precious person that's come into this place. In this new year, every new day, your mercies come afresh to our lives. Thank you for a, a God who gives us grace upon grace Uh, Though we often feel so undeserving of it, you are so gracious to give it. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and you called us, just like you called Abraham, out of a life of, for many of us, idolatry, serving other gods, not knowing the God of the Bible, not knowing truth. And you saved us, and you called us, and you justified us, not by works, but by faith. Now, our faith is a faith that does work. And even though we're saved completely by grace, we know Abraham was an example of a man who was saved by grace but walked out his faith. And I pray that that would be true for us. But we do need understanding, Father, of these most foundational truths. And we have some incredible, uh, rich, profound truth to look at this morning. And I pray that you would lead us where you want us to go Give us ears to hear, add and take away from what I've prepared so that you would be glorified in what we do and what we say. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, if you're like me, I I wrote a lot of cards uh, over the holidays, and uh, I usually end the card with God bless you, and uh, that is my wish for each person, each person I know. Uh, each person that I want the best for is to invoke the blessing of God in their life. When we say God bless you, sometimes we say it after someone sneezes. Uh, We might say it, uh, you know, in a way that we wish the best for them. But I gave you kind of the Hebrew picture of uh, the blessing here in this photo. Because the Hebrew picture language, what Moses would have written, kind of in symbols, almost like a Chinese would be in pictures, moving from right to left, the idea of blessing means the sun covered or the hand covered. And the idea of blessing in Hebrew is that someone has you covered. Someone is invoking the blessings of God. And it's usually, I think in in all cases in, in the Hebrew idea, it's the greater that blesses the lesser. And we see that in Genesis 14 when Melchizedek blessed Abraham. It was the greater 
blessing the lesser. We have a little background music uh, for us this morning, (laughs) for those of you who heard it. Anyway, so that's the idea. We want to be a blessing to our children and grandchildren. I remember I did a message, uh, it was a couple years back, and it was this idea of the blessing, and there was a young man in our congregation who told me that at his wedding, you know, I could see that this idea was moving him profoundly, and he said at his wedding, uh, at the reception, his grandfather, during the reception, gave him the blessing, prayed over his life, prayed over his wife, and I think, if I recall the story correctly, within a few weeks, grandfather passed away, uh, suddenly, unexpectedly, and for that young man, that blessing meant everything to him, because it was grandpa asking God's best into his life. And here we have this idea of blessing in Galatians 3. You'll notice in verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And this is remarkable because this is way back in Abraham's life when he was actually called Abram. Preached the gospel. The scripture foresaw that God would justify non-Jews, Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be, here's the key word, blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Maybe you have uh, seen some interviews lately of a movie star or an athlete. You're not sure where they are spiritually, but they use the word blessed, right? They might say, man, I... I'm blessed, or I have a blessed life, and, and they're using our word. <laughs> they're using our language. In Greek, the word blessed is eulageo, and it's where we get the idea of a eulogy, and it's to speak well of, to invoke blessings. If you stu- have ever stood up at a memorial service and you eulogize someone, you speak of the blessedness of their life, the good things in their life. In Hebrew, the word for bless is barak, B-A-R-A-K. And it's this idea of the hand covering to invoke the blessings of God. How do we bless people in the new year? What is the means by which people get blessed? Well, here it is the gospel. The greatest thing I can give to others is the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, all of you probably realize that three monotheistic religions trace their uh, background to Abraham. You have Judaism, you have Islam, and you have Christianity. And they all trace their, their lineage or their, the backdrop of their religion to a man named Abraham. If you're new to the faith, you may know little about Abraham, but Abraham actually is the focal point of much of the early chapters of Genesis. In fact, after the creation account and the flood, Genesis basically chapters 1 through 11, is the unfolding story of a man who's first revealed to us as Abram, and then he's known as Abraham. And he becomes the father, or what's called the progenitor, of the Hebrew or Israelite or Jewish nation. And he's identified as a Hebrew before we ever have have the name Israel or Jewish. Abraham is known as the Hebrew. If you write down Joshua 24, I won't go there for the sake of time. 
in your notes, Abraham was called out of a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And it was a very pagan place. It was a place where they worshipped many false gods. His father and grandfather were pagans. They were those who worshipped gods outside the Bible, gods with a small g. And Abraham uh, followed the voice of the Lord. The Lord called him out of Ur, called him out of that life, if you will. We don't know exactly what was happening at that moment in Abraham's life. We don't know if he was dissatisfied with the false gods of his grandfather and father. But something in Abraham perhaps wanted something more, and that may be you this morning. Maybe you've grown up in a system where, you know, you have had religious things in your life. You've gone through religious practices. You have traditions, but you're not sure if it's connected you to the living God, to the truth, to life. And sometimes we grow up in systems that may reflect the true gospel, and we know things, we know information, but we don't know God. So Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he followed God, and he didn't know where he was going. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just get up, pack your bags, and go, and I'll show you where I want to take you. In 2020, that might be a good prayer for a lot of us, even though it's a dangerous prayer. Lord, wherever you want to take me this year, I'm willing to go. Here I am, Lord. <laughs> Send me. But could you give me a map? Could you give me GPS? Right. But we're called actually from uh, information in Romans 4 to follow in the footsteps of Abraham who walked by faith and not by sight. Abraham is an example of an Old Testament believer before circumcision was given, before the law was given, who was made right in God's eyes. And you, if you've been studying the Bible for a while, maybe you've asked this question or come across this question. How did a man like Abraham before the cross, before the resurrection, get saved? He didn't know the gospel like we know the gospel. Uh, to what we understand, he didn't know the name of Jesus. Uh, he didn't, from what we can see in the Bible, understand the coming cross. How was an Old Testament person made right in God's sight, how were they redeemed? It's a good question. I came across a story of redemption about a man named Lou Johnson. He was known as Sweet Lou Johnson. He played for the Dodgers. 1965 World Series hero for the L.A. Dodgers, the best team in baseball, by the way. Just wanted you guys to know that. Anyway, that's going to cause division in the congregation, right? He tried for 30 years to recover the championship ring he lost to drug dealers in 1971. Drug and alcohol abuse cost him everything from that magical season, including his uniform, his glove, his bat that he used to hit the winning home run in the deciding game. When Dodger president of that time, Bob Graziano, learned that Johnson's World Series ring was about to be auctioned on the internet, he immediately wrote a check for almost $3,500, bought the ring before any bids were posted. He did for Johnson what the former Dodgers outfielder had been unable to do for himself. Johnson at the time was 66, now in his 80s, who has been uh, drug-free for years and a Dodger community relations employee. He wept when given the gold ring and he said, it felt like a piece of me had been reborn. That's what redemption really is. It's we lose everything that's most important to us and it gets bought back by someone 
that maybe we didn't realize even loved us. That's what redemption is. It's, it's to be purchased back by God. I know if I was to ask uh, for a line of people to come up here and share the redemption stories, one after another of you would share what God has done for you. It's amazing what he's restored back into my life. The foundation that he's allowed me to live from. And so the text begins in verse 6, even so, or if you have an NIV, Galatians 3, 6 says, consider Abraham. Take a moment, consider him. Abraham believed God, and it, his belief, was reckoned to him as righteousness. NIV, he believed God, and it, the belief, was credited to him as righteousness. Now we threw out the question, how was an Old Testament saint saved before the cross? The same way that you and I are saved, by believing in God. Some of the reformers used to say that the greatest worship that you can give God is to trust what he says, to trust his word. Illustrations given, I think it originated with John Piper, and it's this illustration. Imagine that you're playing on a team, and your coach sends a play in. Let's say you're a football player, basketball player. Your coach draws up a play. If you are going to be true as an athlete, you're going to carry out the play of your coach. You're going to take his word that he's called the best play. It could be if you've been called to bunt and give yourself up as a baseball player or run a pick play for a, a shooter that's someone other than you. The coach wants him to take the shot. If you trust your coach, you are taking what he said, and you're saying, I believe that your word is true. We should do what you say. Your doctor gives you a diagnosis. He, he prescribes medication. You honor your doctor by saying, I believe that you have the expertise to diagnose me properly and give me the proper medication. You take him at, at his word. In fact, I think a lot of us would say, that's the highest compliment someone could pay me. They would say that Michael's a man of his word. If he says he's going to show up, I believe he will. If he says he's going to do this, I believe he will. This is what God wants, and this is why belief is so prominent and preeminent in the Bible. God wants you, brother, sister, friend, to take him at his word. Not to believe that you get saved by some other means, but you get saved by believing and trusting in Him. And in both Greek and Hebrew, the Old Testament written in Hebrew primarily, the New Testament written in Greek, the word is the same. Belief in the Bible is to trust the Word of God. It's to say, if you say that's how I get saved, then that's what I'm going to believe. And the Judaizers, if you've been with us in Galatians as we've studied it, these Folks uh, around the church were saying, no, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. You've got to keep the food laws to be saved. Gentiles, non-Jews, need to convert over to Judaism to be saved. And Paul says, no, they don't. Before Abraham was circumcised, 14 years before the sign of circumcision was given in Genesis 14, uh, 17, Abraham was already proclaimed righteous in Genesis 15. And this is the point of the illustration. Paul has used an experiential example in chapter 3. 
Take a peek in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? When you got saved, here's what Paul is saying, experientially, subjectively, if you will. You heard the gospel and you got saved just by believing in what you heard. Amen? You heard a preacher gave you the gospel and you said, Oh Lord, have mercy on me. Thank you for Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and you were born again of the Holy Spirit the moment that you believed. True? You didn't do 50 push-ups. You didn't have to change your diet in the following week, although some of us need to, especially after the holidays. Can I get a witness? Anyway, giving your cookies away. Take this, take this, take the popcorn, please. Anyway. You see, there's an experiential argument given in, given in verses 1 through 5, and now a scriptural argument given, if you're taking notes, in 6 through 14. And the scriptural argument is from two uh, sections or two verses in Genesis, all the way back to Genesis to make his point. Because the Judaizers, these religious leaders, they made their claim back to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. This is from one commentator. He says, Jewish tradition emphasized Abraham's obedience rather than his faith. For example, in 1 Maccabees 2.52, it says, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested? And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22 is merged in 1 Maccabees with Genesis 15.6 with the result that Abraham's obedience rather than his faith is featured. Abraham's obedience, particularly in the sacrifice of Isaac, was a common theme in Jewish writings. I can give you the references if you want them. Paul does not discount Abraham's obedience in Romans 4. Nevertheless, in contrast to Jewish Second Temple literature, Paul puts the accent of Abraham's faith above Abraham's works. It is true that Abraham received the sign of circumcision 14 years later. It is true that Abraham went up on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, and God said, offer Isaac as a burnt offering to me, and Abraham took the knife and he was ready to do it. But that was 30 plus years after Abraham was already declared righteous by his faith. Now, Abraham had a faith that worked. And I know some of us, we hear teaching like this and we get a little concerned. Are we saying that people can just say a sinner's prayer and that's it? And they got their fire insurance and they stick it in their pocket and then they go live like the devil the rest of their life. And we're saying they're okay. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you're saved by faith. Saving faith is what it's all about. But saving faith is not going to be without works. Amen? A true faith is going to produce fruit. And if you don't have fruit in your life, go back and look at the root. If you don't have fruit, you better re-examine the root. But if you are born again, fruit is going to come out. It's going to come out of your life at different, uh, in different ways. You're going to have stages, if you will. You're going to grow. Sometimes we'll have seasons of dryness. 
But you don't have to be on a roller coaster in the Christian faith. Because your salvation is not based upon performance. It's based upon a finished work accomplished for you and me at the cross. This is what Abraham experienced. This is what every Old Testament saint experienced. And I want to show you the first quotation. It's all the way back in Genesis 15. Let's turn there in our Bibles. If you're having trouble locating the book of Genesis, we have counseling set up. (laughs) Genesis 15. Let's start in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. He may have been afraid because he just had a battle with some kings in chapter 14. God says, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. 15.2 of Genesis. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, 15.3, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he, God, took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. He said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord And he, God, reckoned or credited it, his belief to him as what? As righteousness, which means he was made right in God's sight just from that belief. Now that was an act of faith, was it not? I think Abraham is 75 at the time. Or at least he was 75 when he was first called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's an old guy. Now we know a miracle child is coming. To very old parents. (laughs) Right? God's going to do a miracle in taking barrenness and the deadness of Sarai's womb and producing a child whose name Isaac will be known as laughter. Every time they see him, they're going to (laughs) go, Can you believe that? (laughs) We have a baby! (laughs) Amazing. What's God asking you to believe him for? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Well, how am I going to have all these descendants, like the stars that are uncountable, that you call all of them by name, Lord, if I don't even have a kid? And my biological clock is ticking, and so is hers. Do you know how old we are? (laughs) Come outside. Look up. Do you know who made those stars? I did. I call them all by name. And you're going to have descendants as the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore. What did Abraham do? He believed. He said, if you say it, God... I believe it. I don't know how you're going to do it. (laughs) You ever been there before? (laughs) I don't know how you're going to do this. Let me update you on current events, Lord. Do you know who I am? (laughs) Do you know my gifts? Do you know my abilities? 
Can you use somebody like me? Well, I've been doing it for a long time, God might say. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, seven, to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. In ancient custom, if you were going to enter into a covenant that was lofty or serious, they would literally cut animals in half along basically the back. They would take half of the animal except for the birds because they were too small, and they would separate them And the two parties of a covenant would walk through the animal pieces and the blood. And they would make an agreement. This is the idea of meeting in the middle. They would meet in the middle of these uh, fallen animals, if you will. And they would seal their oath in blood. And some historians and commentators say they would add the idea or the symbolism would be, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I become like these animals who have been cut in two. Serious, right? And in the ancient world, if you didn't keep a covenant after you did a ceremony like that, you were looked down on. It was a very uh, bad thing. So he cuts all these animals that we can see are connected to sacrifice in Scripture. He brought all these to him, he cut them in two, laid them opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey, you can imagine, came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not yours, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. This is a prophecy about coming Egypt in the book of Exodus. And afterward they will come out with many possessions. Indeed they did. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God was waiting for Canaan's sin to become uh, fully ripe before his eyes, before he would judge them. And the Amorites are part of the Canaanite area. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant. The word covenant there in Hebrew is barit. It literally means to cut. And the animal pieces, of course, symbolize that. On that day the Lord made or cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. When the passing through the animal parts took place, God is pictured in 17 as a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Abram did not meet God in the middle. Abram was asleep. He fell into a deep sleep. What's the message? In Genesis 15, God made an unconditional covenant by himself. If you want to 
read something along with this. Read Hebrews 6. God could swear by no one higher, so he swore by himself. And he passed through the animal parts as if to say to Abram, I will be good to my promise, and it's going to be by me and me alone. Abram's asleep. He has no role in this except as a passive participant. All the work will be done by God. Amen? This is what we need to understand. If something is going to really have a spiritual impact in 2020, it's going to be because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. We can come up with all kinds of programs, all kinds of you know, approaches, but in the end, we've got to pray that God moves in 2020. Amen? That He moves in my heart and your heart and life. You see, God symbolized the covenant through passing through the animal parts and was saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this. I will be true to my word. And that truth is going to involve sacrifice. Now, Genesis 15 is the first quote that Paul gives in Galatians 3. And then he quotes Genesis 12. So just turn a few pages back. Here's what he quotes. And in reading on this this week, Commentators were saying that because Paul orders his quotations from Genesis 15 first to Genesis 12, we need to read Genesis 12 in the lens of Genesis 15. That's just this simple. Abraham's belief credited righteousness to his account. And here's, let me just explain the language for a minute. So he believed God, he trusted God's word, even though he hadn't realized the promise yet. And God said, because you believe me, I'm going to credit your account with righteousness. Now, the idea of the Greek word here is it's logizomai. And it means to take something that belongs to somebody else and put it into another person's account. And that happened by faith. So imagine if, if you did all your Christmas shopping and it's early January and you say, you tell your friend, yeah, I think I have about 15 bucks in my checking account. And you check online, and all of a sudden you have $1,015,000 in your checking account. You're like, what happened? Bank error in my favor, Monopoly. Uh, this is awesome, right? But wouldn't you wonder, well, where did that come from? I don't think I had a million dollars. And imagine that someone you don't even know credited your account a million dollars. Some of you are saying, yes, I'd love to experience this, please. Can this be reality? Right? And so this is the idea. Someone, here God, credits your account with something that doesn't belong to you simply because you trust the word. And what Abram received, please hear this well, was a foreign righteousness. This is what it means to be saved and made righteous before God. Abram was still the same man. You read his story he lied. He had his own weaknesses. He had problems just like we all do. What changed in Abram at that very moment was a crediting of righteousness that didn't belong to him. This is why theologians call it a foreign righteousness. It goes to his account simply by him trusting in God. It belongs to another. Now please hear me because this is critical for your understanding of the gospel. When you trust Jesus Christ 
a transaction occurs. God takes the righteousness of Jesus, a foreign righteousness, what doesn't belong to you, and he puts it into your account the moment you take him at his word. You get the righteousness of Jesus. And the divine transaction of the gospel is this. Very important. Your sin goes to Jesus at the cross and his righteousness goes into your account by faith. And this is called the great exchange of the cross. My sin went to Jesus at the cross. The innocent sufferer dies in my stead and his righteousness, the moment I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, goes to my account. It's the great divine transaction, the great exchange of the cross. This is God's exchange rate, if you will. He gives you, not only does he forgive your sin, he gives you the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account the moment you say, I believe, I surrender, credited, righteous in my eyes. You can't get more righteous than the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Amen. Sometimes, you know, we look in the mirror and I go, can you love somebody like me? Can you use somebody like me, Lord? And you have the righteousness of Christ right now. If you're a Christian right now, you are right in God's eyes. Amen? It's pretty good news, isn't it? Because the only other option is to be wrong in His eyes. And to be cloaked in the unrighteousness of your sin. And you, even your good deeds, Isaiah 64, are like filthy rags before the Lord. I need the righteousness of one who's actually righteous. And I've got it the moment I believe. This is the blessing. We see Genesis 15, uh, Genesis 12 through the lens of Genesis 15. And here's the other quotation. Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. Seven promises. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse and here's the quotation. And in you, Abram, what's your Bible say? All the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what you have to see here is that the promise is ultimately about the gospel. Abram will give birth, his wife, to Isaac. That's son of laughter, son of promise who will then give birth through his wife to Jacob. I just have to clarify that. <laughs> and then on down the line till we get to a Messiah. Abram didn't fully realize this yet. But through his lineage, through his family line, the Messiah would come forth and by virtue of that, that's how all the nations of the earth are blessed. Everybody with me? Galatians 3 is telling you how to interpret Genesis 12. Genesis 15 is telling you how to interpret Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in Revelation 7, when we see this great scene in heaven, 
There's people worshiping the Lamb, worshiping God from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation because of what God did through Abram. Now here's an application point. You get saved. You may be the first Christian in your family that you know about. And now you've started a process by which you've now shared that gospel with children and grandchildren. And a process has started, and you may not know what the end of that process is going to be, but who knows what's ahead? Who knows how God may use your children and your grandchildren? Abram couldn't have, could he have fathomed what would happen? Now I want to show you one other thing. This is Genesis 14. So Lot gets captured uh, by some kings, some eastern kings. And Abram goes on a rescue mission with 318 trained men. He's able to save Lot, bring him back. And uh, he defeated, uh, look at 1417, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Leomer. He's the guy that uh, invented cheddar cheese. Write that down in your Bible. No, don't write that down. That's not true, <laughs> as far as I know. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shava. There's uh, the king's valley there. There are commentators that believe that's the Kidron Valley, right at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Now, Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem is a shorter name for Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was the priest of God Most High. If you've ever studied this idea of Melchizedek, which we see taught on in Hebrews 7, people are, commentators are divided. Some people think he's a type of Jesus. There's others that believe that he, Melchizedek, is, is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. All right? Now, here's what happens. Abram's won this great battle. He's saved Lot. He's got a bunch of possessions. And he gets met by the king of Sodom, 17. We know that that area was rebellious to God. And all of a sudden, there, perhaps at the foot of the Mount of Olives, at the Kidron Valley, another king shows up, and he's Melchizedek, Melchizedek the king of Salem. That's the idea of king of peace, from the idea of shalom. And what does Melchizedek bring out? Bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And here's what he does. He blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram. You can write down Hebrews 7, 7, I think it is, where the greater always blesses the lesser. Of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. Abram then gives a tenth of the possessions. Who is this mysterious Melchizedek? Sometimes people say, you know, they hear John 8 and Jesus says, Abram, Abraham was uh, happy, paraphrasing, to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. John 8, 56. Well, you might say, well, how did Abraham see your day? The religious leader said, you're not even 50 years old. How did you, how did Abraham see you? And sometimes those of us who have delved into these passages we say oh maybe in genesis 22 when he was about to offer isaac 
And Isaac took the wood, and he's laying on the wood, and he's about to kill him, and it's a picture of the gospel, and Isaac is kind of like a type of the resurrection, and he doesn't die, and he ends up walking back down the mountain, and it's on the same mountain where Jesus would die 2,000 years later. Yes, and I like it, and I would agree, but is it possible that Abram, to become Abraham, met Jesus in Genesis 14? Is it possible that with the elements of bread and wine and this king of Sodom basically tempting Abram, which when you read on, that's what happened, and Abraham's got to fight the temptation and the king of Salem with bread and wine refreshes him and encourages him and blesses his life. It's at least a picture of the gospel just like Genesis 22 is. And here's the point. All these incredible connections, Abraham got a taste of what it meant to be blessed and saved. He believed in the Lord. Do you? Galatians 3, let's turn back there. Have you taken him at his word? Do you believe that you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God? Have you taken that confidence that the price has been paid in full and you have the righteousness of Christ credited to your account and are you going on in freedom because of it? I'm preaching to myself. I struggle with the enemy condemning me. I struggle with my own feelings of unworthiness. I struggle with doubts like we all can struggle with them. But is my soul ultimately anchored to this reality, I will trust you because you said the moment I believe in what your son did for me, I have his righteousness. Therefore, be sure. Second verse of Galatians 3. <laughs> We're going to move fast now. I promise. Therefore, be sure. Some of you need to mark that. Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of of Abraham. The false teachers may have been saying the only way you can become part of Abraham's family is circumcision and keeping the food laws. And Paul says, nope. Be sure the way that you enter into this redeemed family, you become the children of Abraham, is by belief. Understand NIV. It's those who believe who are children of Abraham. If you skip down to verse 16 for a second, you can see a couple clarifying points. Now the promises, Galatians 3.16, were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Skip down to verse uh, 25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, clothed yourselves with Christ. You have his righteousness. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. It doesn't mean that you stop being what you are. It just means that these categories don't matter in your standing before God. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, what your Bible say? then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs 
according to the promise. Understand. The scripture foresaw, NIV verse 8, it looked forward to this time when God, New Living Translation, would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced or proclaimed the gospel in advance to Abraham. And there's our quote from Genesis 12, 3, all nations will be blessed through you. Just notice in verse 8 the nature of Scripture. Scripture is personified here so that what Scripture says is what God himself says. The Scripture foresaw, because the Bible is God's word, amen? And when the Bible says something, it's going to take place. The first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, you take it to the bank. Final verse. So then, conclusion. Those who are of faith are what? They're blessed. With Abraham, the believer. When Jesus was on the earth, he said to some of the religious leaders, hey, the prostitutes and tax collectors are going to get into the kingdom before you. (gasps) And they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. What? Those are our forefathers. And you paraphrase, won't be there. What? (laughs) It's part of the reason that they wanted to take Jesus out. What do you mean I won't be there? I tithe of mint and cumin. I fast twice a week. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. (laughs) Little cowardly line there for you. I do. Jesus says, that doesn't matter. Because all of that is outward show and your heart is far from God. You need to fall on the mercy of God. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Let's not talk about other people. Let's talk about you. Some people say, oh, it's, the, it's the people who are really messed up that need Jesus. It's, uh, you know, it's those people over there. You share your faith with someone at Christmas time. Good for you. It's good for you. I know, I know you needed that. <laughs> You need that forgiveness stuff through Christ, not me. Oh, you need it. In fact, you need it more than you know. And if Jesus had anything hard to say to the religious leaders, it was all about their pride. They thought by their lineage and their works, they were right with God, and God, God the Son says, no, you're not. You must believe me. Unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sin. I've stood before many groups of people, shared the gospel. I'll give you one story, and we're going to take communion. I was in a memorial setting. A person had passed away. Belonged to an educational institution. And uh, I did what I always do, which is my job. I proclaim the gospel. I brought it with compassion, but I told the truth. And I said, look, there's a heaven and a hell. The mortality rate is quite impressive. (laughs) You're going to die. I'm sorry, but you've got to deal with your mortality, and you must trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. gentleman comes up to me at the end of that service and says, thank you for preaching the truth of the gospel. There was a lot of very intellectual, educated people in this room, and I'm not sure where most of them are at. But thank you for sharing the truth of the gospel. That's what we got to do. We got to do it with compassion. 
We, we have to say, Lord, the Lord saved somebody like me. He can save you, but we have, we have a sin problem and we need a savior and that's why Jesus came and aren't you glad he came? <laughs> he came for you and for me. Oh, Father, thank you for your living word. We're about to partake of bread and wine. We can't help but think of Melchizedek. And even though our version is grape juice, we, we know what it represents, and we think of the new covenant. We think of what you instituted on the night before you died for us. Taking the matzah and the wine and saying, this is my body. This is my blood shed for you. I love you. I pray for every soul in this place that we would be enraptured with your love. We would be in awe of your goodness to us. We would have a confidence not in ourselves but in your finished work. And this year would be a great year of us being truly free and sharing the blessing with others. The way we share the blessing is sharing the gospel. That's what Genesis 12 is about. It's the blessing is the gospel. And one way that we can walk this out is to be sharing, living and sharing the gospel this year. Maybe more than we ever have before. Would you stir us, Lord? Would you help us in that endeavor? I thank you for all the faithful saints here that are doing that regularly. And I, th I pray that that would increase, that we'd be given away the ultimate blessing of the gospel. Thank you so much. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.